Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One last time. It's question time. Welcome to the final episode of Quenya Questions in Quarantine, where we bring this Silmarillion to its final conclusion and complete our year plus journey through this messy, brilliant narrative. Sam here again, and I'm really excited to take you through this last part of the book. Since this is our last episode, I thought I would start off with a bit of reminiscing about the journey so far Obviously, while Raleigh and I are hopeful that people may listen to this show someday in the future and learn more about the Silmarillion, this book that we both have really enjoyed, you know, we did record the show during a very particular point in time, a very particular, very weird time in the world where the coronavirus forced everybody inside more or less for a year, a little more, a little less. The quarantine was very real, and I think for both Raleigh and I, this is a great opportunity to dive into a story, dive into a project that could divert us or take up our time during aspects of the 2020 lifestyle that really were not so good. And now, here we are, fingers crossed, and of course, depending on where you live in the world, it looks like we're finally starting to come out the other side of this thing. Raleigh and I are lucky enough to be able to get out and about. And as I said last episode, Raleigh has indeed embarked on his own next adventure. And so unfortunately, we'll not be joining you and I today. While we won't be hearing him on this last episode, Raleigh can now claim the title of Solmarillion Finisher. <laughs> and trust me, that is no small feat, as anyone who has tried this book before will tell you. But I assure you... Raleigh is with us in spirit as we bring Quenya Questions in Quarantine to a close. This one's dedicated to you, man. I could have never made it without you. Now, if you've made it this far into our show, I'm going to assume you are into the deep cut. So we're going to get some here. We're going to really dive into this last chapter and try and tease out all the great pieces in there as much as possible. So 
hold on to your butts. <laughs> this is really an opportunity to see the payoff from all the work that we have done sifting through the name soup of the Silmarillion, all of the geography, the history, the genealogy, those deep cuts from the Silmarillion. There's a lot of payoff in this final chapter, so we're going to really take some time to explore those callbacks as we finally connect all of that action and history and genealogy, etc. in time and catch up with the Lord of the Rings, which again is usually the reason folks are reading the Silmarillion is that they want to find out more about this Lord of the Rings universe. And we're going to really get up into the events of the Lord of the Rings in the chapter today. And so we're going to try and tie this all together as much as we can. The name of today's chapter is Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age. And the subtitle of it is In Which These Tales Come to Their End. This will be the last episode of Quenya Questions in Quarantine. Let's go out with a bang. Okay, to briefly summarize what happened last time in this big old Akalabeth section so that we can be ready to rock today. Remember, last episode was all about the rise and fall of the island of Numenor and a group of people that lived on Numenor called the Numenorians. Good guess. And this really was the Numenorians were the greatest civilization that Middle-earth has ever seen. They were so powerful that they even humbled Sauron. Um, of course, that was a bad call. Sauron's corrupting influence really helped push the Numenorians over the edge, and they slowly went from sailors and teachers of people in Middle-earth to conquerors and eventually to enslavers, Morgoth worshippers, and uh, human sacrificers. So quite a trajectory for the Numenorians. In the end, they were so corrupted that they attempted to sail to Valinor to the west in force, breaking the one rule that they weren't allowed to do that. And in punishment, the island of Numenor is destroyed forever, along with most of that entire civilization. However, a few faithful men did manage to escape the destruction of Numenor because they did not go against the Valar. These are kind of the smart Numenorians, and they are rescued from this Atlantis-style destruction and end up in Middle-earth. And these notably include Elendil, Anarion, and Isildur, and these are going to be the forefathers, of course, of Aragorn from The Lord of the Rings. And Elendil, Anarion, and Isildur, these remaining Numenorians, obviously have a huge grudge against Sauron for his part in destroying their whole people, basically, and homeland. So that's where we left the Numenor section so that we can move on to the Rings of Power and the Third Age today. For today's final chapter i once again am deputizing for the raleigh recap and so i've divided the chapter into four sections and these four sections are section one five elves section two twenty rings section three the last alliance and section four everything else. And by the time we're done today, we truly will have caught up and even moved past the events of the Lord of the Rings. So it's going to be a wild ride and there's plenty to dig into. Let's kick it off with 
Section 1. Five Elves. The first thing to be aware of in this chapter is that the chapter title is very misleading from a chronological viewpoint. The section is called Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, but the chapter does not start in the Third Age. We're actually going back quite a bit, and we're going to start in the Second Age, which is the one that was covered in detail in the last chapter, the one where Numenor is rising and falling. So this is important to keep track of. We're basically going to go back to the defeat of Morgoth, right, where the Valar came down after Arendil convinced them to finally help the elves and men. The Valar and the remaining elves in Valinor come and they defeat Morgoth. And then while the Numenorians are off with their newly created island and doing their thing, we're going to kind of find out what was happening back in Middle-earth during that whole time. And eventually we're going to catch up in the Second Age with the sinking of Numenor and the end of our last chapter. But you have to keep in mind that right now and for more than half of this chapter, honestly, these are concurrent with the Numenorians. So while I'm talking about this section five elves and the next one, 20 rings, keep in mind that this is all happening while the Numenorians are doing their whole thing. This section is Five Elves, and it's named for the five elves that are going to be very important in this chapter, some of whom we know and love already, and some of whom are going to be brand new. So I wanted to just set them up so that as they pop up throughout the rest of our story, up until the final conclusion, we really know who we're talking about. These characters are very important. And these five elves are Elrond, Galadriel, Kyrdin, Gilgalad, and Celebrimbor. Really just a powerful five right there. So let's start off with the first one, Elrond. <laughs> we know Elrond, right? He's a big character in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But this is the first time in the Silmarillion that he really has entered the story. Now, it's important to remember that Elrond is the son of Eärendil, the mariner who sailed with his wife Elwing across the sea and then was sent into the heavens with the Silmaril upon his brow and now basically is a star, Eärendil. Eärendil and Elwing had two children, Elrond and Elros. Elrond chose to be an elf and Elros's brother chose to live as a man. Elros is the first king of Numenor, so he's overruling Numenor for several hundred years before dying because he chose to be a man. Elrond, however, stays in Middle-earth, and he's going to live forever, right, as an elf, and he goes and founds Rivendell at this time. So, very exciting. We know Rivendell, that's Elrond's main spot, and he's going to be around this chapter. So, we know Elrond, not too much more that we need to say about that, except, of course, to point out once again that because Aragorn is descended from Elros down many, many, many generations, Elrond is also related to Aragorn. Elrond is like the great, 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 great times, you know, 50 uncle of Aragorn. Kind of just a weird dynamic to keep in mind. Okay, so that's Elrond, number one of the five elves. The second one is Galadriel. Again, we don't need to talk too much about Galadriel until she comes up, but just remember that she is one of the oldest elves, right? She was over in Valinor before the exile of the Noldor. She's related to the other Noldor we know and love, right? Feanor, Fingolfin, Finarfin. She knows all them. 
Anyway, so Galadriel is going to be around. Then we have Kierden, and Kierden has been popping in and out of our story every so often for a while, but it's important to bring him up now because he plays quite a part in this chapter. Remember, this is Kierden the shipwright, the guy who is the surfer always hanging out on the western coast of Middle-earth. He just loves the sea, but he never crossed over to Valinor. He just forever is going to be on the coast. And he he really is the oldest remaining elf in Middle-earth because he was part of that first huge migration of the elves from the east. The gods came and said, hey, come check out Valinor. And they started going across to the west. Círdan paused at the sea, right? He came to the west coast. He said, nah, I don't really need to go across. So he is just there on the shore. He also, remember, is notably the only elf to ever be known to have a beard, Mostly just because he's uh, very old. And so he's going to have a beard and he's going to do some of this chapter. Okay, that's Elrond, Gladril, Círdan. Now we get into the totally new elves who we have not met before. So worth knowing about these two fellas. The first is Gilgalad. Now, Gilgalad is the sixth and last, sadly, high king of the Noldor, for he fathers no children. It's a little tragic, and we're going to talk about this later, but the Noldor, you know, are Harry Potter elves who created the Silmarils, fought against Morgoth, who really drove our whole story forward. The Noldor sort of come to an end by the end of this chapter, and Gilgalad will be their last high king. A bit of a side note about Gilgalad is that his parentage is a little bit confusing in terms of how he relates in the genealogy to the other Noldor. It says here in our Silmarillion chapter that Gilgalad is the son of Fingon, and Fingon was the son of Fingolfin, and so it's kind of that warrior group of Noldor, right? Fingolfin, the greatest warrior of the Noldor ever. Fingon, his son, was also a warrior, and then Gilgalad is the son of Fingon. However, Apparently, there's some controversy about Gilgalad's parentage, and Christopher Tolkien, right, the son of J.R. Tolkien, who edited and really we have to credit with the published version of the Silmarillion we have in our hands here today, Christopher Tolkien made a mistake. He said later in his life that actually Gilgalad was supposed to be the son of a different one of the Noldor, a different branch, the branch of Finarfin, the wise brother, rather than Fingolfin, the warrior brother. Maybe this unclear history for Gilgalad is actually kind of fitting because here he really just stands in for all the best parts of the Noldor at once, and he's going to be very wise and also a great warrior. It also does remind me, and this maybe is our first callback to an earlier episode, we have to think about that issue of translation and transmission, right? We said in our very first episode, right, who is writing this history of the gods and the elves and the men? For Tolkien, it's not just an omniscient narrator, it's somebody who wrote it down, who found ancient texts and translated them, who tried to compile oral accounts with written texts and tried to tell us the story. And that's part of why it's so messy and confusing and kind of disjointed at times is because he's trying to be very like real in the process of how a story and a history comes together, right? J.R.R. Tolkien always taking it to 11 in terms of making it feel like a real place that people live in. And what we know here is it says 
Gilgalad was the son of Fingon, but the narrator just simply isn't always trustworthy in the story, right? Nobody knows the full picture. For instance, at the beginning of the Silmarillion, it's like, here's how the gods were created and the earth was formed. But of course, nobody was there to see that. So it's all trying to explain something to the modern reader from what the elves said. And it just all gets messy. But it is funny here that of all the narrators, you would think that Christopher Tolkien would be the most trustworthy of them all. But even he can mess up. So just coming back to that idea of we're never going to quite get the full picture. We just have to take what we can from the Silmarillion in front of us, which obviously has plenty of meat there to digest and speculate on. And that's um, what we've been doing for a year. Anyway, we're going to come back to this issue of translation and transmission and who's reliable a little bit later. Okay, so those are four of our five elves, Elrond, Galadriel, Círdan the Surfer, then we've got Gil-galad, the last high king of the Noldor, and then we've got number five, Celebrimbor. Side note, I love the name Celebrimbor. What a super Tolkien-y and over-the-top elven name. Celebrimbor is the greatest craftsman in Middle-earth. He, in fact, is the greatest craftsman in the history of the elves, except only one. His grandfather, Feanor himself, the elf who made the three Silmarils. And so Celebrimbor is the son of Curufin, who is actually one of the worst sons of Feanor. So that makes Feanor his grandfather. But Celebrimbor was sort of estranged from his father, Curufin, who was one of those super thirsty for the Silmaril sons of Feanor. And so Celebrimbor is a much nicer guy. And he's going to make some uh, very nice objects here in our story in a little bit. Celebrimbor, also, he lives in a part of Middle-earth called Eregion, which isn't super important. But Celebrimbor and his elves, who are in Middle-earth during this time, are friends with the dwarves in Moria. This is a bit surprising, right? And this is the last time that the elves and dwarves are going to be buds basically forever. And the reason that they're buds is the reason that they were friends way long ago, right? Remember the Noldor are our crafty elves, the ones who like mining, who like making things. You know, they share interests with the dwarves, more or less, who are into mining and crafting as well. And so at this time, Middle-earth, while the Numenorians are doing their thing, there's this last nice relationship between the elves and the dwarves. And these are the dwarves who live in Moria from the Lord of the Rings. And of course, this is the last friendship and very rare because of the whole controversy between the dwarves and elves that happened during the ruin of Doriath, where Thingol had the Silmaril and he wanted it put in the dwarven necklace, the Noglamir, and then the dwarves were like, now nah, we're going to take it. And then they squabbled and then the dwarves murdered Thingol and then the elves killed all the dwarves and then they hated each other forever. So this is a nice little moment within that tension that's going to last forever. Celebrimbor and his elves in the Dwarves of Moria. A great symbol of this relationship in the Lord of the Rings is actually the Doors of Durin, which are made by Celebrimbor and also the greatest Dwarven craftsman of the time named Narvi. 
Now, these doors are in the Lord of the Rings movies. Actually, J.R.R. Tolkien himself sketched them at one point. They are the doors that the Fellowship of the Ring goes through to get into Moria, right? They glow in the starlight and the moonlight, and then it's the, like, speak friend and enter, and they swing open. And you'll see if you ever look at what those doors look like, they have a lot of Dorvan imagery, right? Because it's to a Dorvan kingdom. They've got the hammer and an anvil and like a crown for the dwarves. But you'll also see that there are two trees curled around the bases of the pillars that are sort of supporting the edges of this door. Could these be the two trees of Valinor? Not entirely clear, but certainly an elven image. And these doors were made by Kella Brimbor, as I said, and this Dorvan craftsman. And the whole thing about that little riddle that Mary solves in the book and Frodo solves in the movie, the speak friend and enter means just say friend, is a sign of that very friendly relationship between the dwarves and the elves that happens during this time in our story, this friendship between Celebrimbor and the elves in Eregion and the dwarves in Moria, which of course uh, has faded away by the time the fellowship is passing through there. Okay, so I know that was a totally non-narrative section, but now we have our five elves set up. Elrond, Gladril, Círdan, Gilgalad, and Celebrimbor, the great craftsman. Now we can find out why we needed to learn all those names. Now let's move into section two, 20 rings. And I want to start this section by talking about what Sauron has been doing the whole time. So remember, this is before he's captured by the Numenorians, and we're going all the way back to when Morgoth is defeated by the Valar. What the heck happened with Sauron, right? Sauron was Morgoth's right-hand man. What became of him? And there is an interesting piece here about Sauron, our big bad guy, right, from Lord of the Rings, he almost seems like he has a conscience here for a second. It says that after Morgoth is defeated, some hold that Sauron in truth repented, if only out of fear. So he says, oh no, my boss is destroyed. Maybe this was not a good idea trying to enslave everyone and become the Dark Lords of Middle-earth. And the Valar say, hey, like we might forgive you, but we need you to return to Valinor in the West. And there we will cast judgment on you for basically being a bad guy, right? And helping Morgoth. And it's this teetering on the brink that's kind of interesting for Sauron, right? That maybe he repented. But then, of course, when he's told to go like, you know, show obeisance or receive the judgment of Valar, it's only now that he won't repent that he goes back to his own evil ways. And it says, quote, Sauron was ashamed and he was unwilling to return in humiliation and to receive from the Valar a sentence, it might be, of long servitude in proof of his good faith. Therefore, he hid himself in Middle-earth and he fell back into evil. So Sauron after Morgoth goes away, almost repents and then doesn't, which actually is, I guess, more credit than I would have given him, right? He thought about 
trying to serve his sentence for being a bad guy. But then it's almost like a Treaty of Versailles sort of thing. The Valar punishment of him for being bad is so, so heavy that it just leads to even worse consequences in the future. So instead of repenting, Sauron now becomes the bad guy that we always knew he could be. And remember, Sauron is one of these Maiar spirits that's been there since before the world was created. He's Morgoth's greatest servant. And with Morgoth gone, he really becomes the best evil guy he can be and really steps into that role of mean girl Sauron instead of mean girl Morgoth. And he can go among the elves and just like his master once did spread lies among his enemies and get them to work against their own interests. Of course, like I said, this is before the Numenorians capture him, so Sauron can still appear in a fair and wise shape. He's not like a big giant eye or a big like sceptered colossus like he is in the movies. He just looks like an elf, more or less, and he starts spreading these rumors in Middle-earth, especially among the Noldor and Celebrimbor, our craftsmen. And this is very similar to what Morgoth did. Morgoth knew that the Noldor are very susceptible to this allure of power, of creation, of making a heaven on Earth. And that's how Feanor fell. And now Sauron's using that same playbook here with the elves in Middle-earth who have have this friendly relationship with the dwarves and are set to be manipulated. So here's a quote about what Sauron does to these elves and with these elves. It was by the Noldor that the counsels of Sauron were most gladly received, for they desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. Moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts, since they had refused to return into the West, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Therefore they hearkened to Sauron, and they learned of him many things, for his knowledge was great. In those days the elven smiths surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and they made rings of power. But Sauron guided their labors, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and to bring them under his vigilance. So now at last, Celebrimbor, along with Sauron, what a weird duo, and the other elves forge all of those rings of power we know of from Lord of the Rings, including one ring in particular. And here's how that came to be. Now the elves made many rings, but secretly Sauron made one ring to rule all the others, and their power was bound up with it, to be subject wholly to it, and to last only so long as it too should last. And much of the strength and will of Sauron passed into that one ring, for the power of the elven rings was very great, and that which should govern them must be a thing of surpassing potency, 
and Sauron forged it in the mountain of fire, in the land of shadow. And while he wore the one ring, he could perceive all the things that were done by means of the lesser rings, and he could see and govern the very thoughts of those that wore them. But the elves were not so lightly to be caught. As soon as Sauron set the one ring upon his finger, they were aware of him, and they knew him, and perceived that he would be master of them, and of all that they wrought. Then in anger and fear, they took off their rings. But he, finding that he was betrayed and that the elves were not deceived, was filled with wrath, and he came against them with open war, demanding that all the rings should be delivered to him, since the elven smiths could not have attained to their making without his lore and counsel. But the elves fled from him, and three of their rings they saved and bore them away and hid them. So right off the bat, one thing interesting about this quote that you may not have known about is that Sauron had a hand in making most of these rings, right? He didn't just make the one ring, but he helped with most of the other ones. He was there almost in a partnership with Celebrimbor and the other Noldor smiths still living in Middle-earth. They didn't know he was Sauron. They just thought he was this really wise guy, I guess. But he helped them and guided them in this process. And now we have our rings of power, almost the new MacGuffin, right? Like the new thing that's going to drive our story forward now that the Silmarils are no longer in our grasp. We have our new objects of power, right? These rings. And Sauron was very intimately tied with them, not just the one ring. Of course, though, at the end of that quote, there are these three rings that the elves bear away and hide from Sauron. And these three elven rings are the best of the batch. And it says they were forged by Celebrimbor alone, and the hand of Sauron had never touched them. These rings at this time are given to three of our five elves from the last section, the three we know probably the best. Galadriel gets one of these rings, and we know that because she shows it to Frodo in the book and the movie. Elrond gets one of these rings, which folks may or may not know. And Círdan, the surfer, Círdan the shipwright, gets the third of these elvish rings, and they basically hide them away. Sauron is trying to get all the rings, but these three he can't find, and they're sort of very secretive with them, and give them to these three elves who live scattered around the continent, right? Galadriel is in Lothlorien, Elrond's in Rivendell, and then Círdan's wherever on the coast, where Sauron can't get the ring. Now, I have an extended quote here from the Lord of the Rings that touches on these three rings and about this kind of sordid history about how they were made with Sauron having his greedy fingers in that process. And this is a scene between Galadriel and Frodo, where Galadriel basically lays on the line how sad Frodo's quest is for the elves because of this history of the rings of power. So if you picture it from Galadriel's perspective, there are only, I guess, three outcomes. 
outcome number one and the worst is that Sauron finds Frodo and takes his one ring back and then Sauron just wins like he can just conquer Middle Earth. So that's the worst. But what's interesting is that if Frodo succeeds in his quest, it's almost just as bad or just differently bad for the elves, because as this earlier quote from the Silmarillion makes clear, if the one ring is destroyed, the power of the elven rings also fades away. And so all the good work that Galadriel has done with her ring Elrond has done with his ring, and then Círdan has done with his ring, all of that's going to fade away because that power is tied to the one ring, right? Sauron set up this like pyramid scheme system where the one ring is at the top of this pyramid and all the other ones are just kind of feeding up to him. So if Frodo succeeds in his quest, which he does at the end of the story, right, he throws the ring in the fire, that fades away, right? Like that's sad for Gladwell and she knows this. There is a third option, of course, between these two that Galadriel is going to address here in this quote. And this is what if she takes up the one ring? All right, that's a plenty of lead in. Let's read this quote and then we can talk about it. Galadriel lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands towards the east Do you not see now wherefore your coming is as the footstep of doom? For if you fail, then we are laid bare to the enemy. Yet if you succeed, then our power is diminished, and Lothlorien will fade, and the tides of time will sweep it away. We must depart into the west, or dwindle to a rustic folk of dell and cave, slowly to forget and to be forgotten. Frodo bent his head. You are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel, said Frodo. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. Galadriel laughed with a sudden clear laugh. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I had pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands. And now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of a dark lord, you will set up a queen, and I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. She lifted up her hand, And from the ring that she wore, there issued a great light that illuminated her alone and left all else dark. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Then she let her hand fall and the light faded and suddenly she laughed again. A slender elf woman clad in simple white whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I pass the test, she said. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. It's quite a tragic story 
for the elves in Middle-earth, really. Once these rings are created, they have so much potency because of the power of the rings. Galadriel has made this wonderful elf kingdom, Lothlorien, with the greatest trees in Middle-earth, and it's protected from the outside world. And if Frodo succeeds, it will go away. And yet she accepts that consequence rather than Sauron's victory or herself becoming tempted. And knowing what we do about the Silmarillion, how much we can wish that only if Feanor and his sons had shown such restraint when Morgoth and Ungoliant took the Silmarils. If only they had said, I will not become evil to stop evil. And that was not their path. Or Thingol, come to think about it, if only he had been less covetous and not needed to take the Silmaril and the Naglamir for his own glory and power. And remember that Galadriel was there. She was there when Feanor and his son swore that terrible oath to reclaim the Silmarils at all costs. She was there or nearby where the ruin of Doriath happened and Thingol was slain by the dwarves and that tragedy came about. And here she faces her own test, having all that background and experience and knowing the stakes. And she manages to pass the test quite a moment for Galadriel. Now to return to our narrative though, of course, Sauron has put on this one ring that he just forged, thinking, haha, I will be the ruler of all of the rings. But the elves defy him. They hide away these three best rings, giving them to Elrond, Galadriel, and Círdan, and they withhold the rest of them. So he goes into a rage and he sends out a huge army to basically attack Celebrimbor and the other elves who have these rings of power. And this army kills Celebrimbor, this greatest craftsman among the Noldor, and they seize all of these rings except the three that we've been talking about. So Sauron now has a fat stack of rings. Now that he has them, he knows that his one ring is able to exert some control over the other rings. So he starts handing them out to people as what he would call gifts, but actually as part of his plan to start taking control of the different kingdoms and races of Middle Earth. And he hands out notably seven of these rings he's gathered to the dwarves to different dwarf lords and nine of them to men, hoping that he can corrupt the dwarves and men with these gifts of rings. And this is where we get the opening poem of the Lord of the Rings series, which I read to start today's episode. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the Dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. And of course, we have the one ring to rule them all. 
And so that's where we get this section's title, 20 rings, because if you go three, seven, nine, and then the one to rule them all, we've got 20 of these rings of power scattered about Middle Earth at this point. Let's talk about how effective this strategy is for Sauron. So as I said, he gives seven of them out to the dwarves. However, this is only met with limited success from Sauron's perspective, mostly because the dwarves are just really stubborn. It says that most of the dwarves resisted the drive to evil embodied in the rings as they're kind of corrupted by the one ring just because the dwarves are tough. They're hard to tame. And this stubbornness is a great callback to who the dwarves are as a species. Remember that the dwarves were not made like the elves and men by Iluvatar, the highest god, but they were a creation of Aule, the smith, the foreman of the Arda Corporation, who made this creature, the dwarves, in likeness to himself. And like their ruler, they love the stuff made by their own hands. They love the stuff of the earth. And they also were made in a time when Morgoth, who was then called Melkor, ruled Middle Earth entirely. So they're stubborn, they're hardy, they're loyal and hard to sway because they were just like built for a darker, harder place. And so they're not likely to be swayed by other people's influence. Let's put it that way. However, these traits they get from Aule, their creator, of loving the stuff made by their own hands and the stuff of the earth, these traits are accentuated by the corruption of the Dwarven rings that Sauron hands out. The Dwarven greed goes into overdrive, and many of the Dwarves who get these rings become obsessed with gold and treasure And this proves their downfall on many occasions because they get distracted. They incur the attention of dragons, for example, who want to get all the gold that they're making. And the gift of the Dwarven Rings, while not like convincing the dwarves to fight for Sauron, which never happens, it does distract them or kind of take them out of the ball game a little bit if we're thinking of like two sides Sauron versus the elves and men the dwarves kind of don't help as much because they're distracted by these seven rings notably the dwarf Thor Thorin Oakenshield's grandfather Remember Thorin from The Hobbit, the reason for the quest of the Lonely Mountain. Thorin's grandfather, Thror, had one of these seven dwarf rings. And it's sort of speculated that maybe that's why he creates all this big hoard of gold and gems in the Lonely Mountain in Erebor. And it also says that the foundation of each of these seven dwarf hordes of the kings of old was one of these rings. So picture all of that gold and jewelry and weaponry and gems, like that huge wealth inside the Lonely Mountain. Can you imagine six more of those scattered throughout Middle Earth? We never hear about any of them. Apparently the dragons took some of them in kind of a throwaway line that's never covered any of the Tolkien stories, but just was wild to me. Just to think that there are these hordes out there somewhere, right? What a treasure to come across these huge collections of wealth. So that's the seven dwarf rings. But of course, nine go to men, and the men are not quite as resistant as the dwarves were. Here's a quote about what happens to the nine rings of men. 
men proved easier to ensnare. Those who used the Nine Rings became mighty in their day, kings, sorcerers, and warriors of old. They obtained glory and great wealth, yet it turned to their undoing. They had, as it seemed, unending life, yet life became unendurable to them. And one by one, sooner or later, according to the native strength and to the good or evil of their wills in the beginning, they fell under the thraldom of the ring that they bore and under the dominion of the One, which was Sauron's. And they became forever invisible, save to him that wore the ruling ring, and they entered into the realm of shadows. The Nazgul they were, the Ringwraiths, the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. So here we have the origin story of the Ring Wraiths, the Black Riders that are such a great villain across the Lord of the Rings, whether on horseback or eventually on the fell beasts of the sky. They all started as men that were given these gifts of power, right? And then slowly were corrupted by Sauron. And they became, as it says, his greatest servants, these nine Ring Wraiths. In the context of the Silmarillion, of course, this temptation that the rings present to the human kings that eventually will become the ring wraiths has a bit of an extra element to it because we just came out of the back of the Numenor chapter, which is so obsessed with human mortality. The Numenorians ultimately were corrupted because they wanted to live forever and they could not accept dying. They were afraid of dying. They started clinging to life until they grew mad or they got illnesses they never had before. And eventually they tried to attack Valinor with the thought that they would attack the undying lands and become immortal somehow, which of course wasn't ever going to work. And it ended up with their whole civilization being destroyed. But what's interesting here is that the ring wraiths get the thing the Numenorians were trying to get, immortality. They had, as it seemed, unending life. But this has a great cost. The Ringwraiths become shadows of who they were, complete thralls to Sauron. It's a terrible form of immortality, but they did get it, right? It's a very interesting show of Mm, yeah, like maybe immortality is not all it's cracked up to be. And like human freedom probably worth a lot more than being able to live forever if you have to be the slave and servant of Sauron. Also, what we know about mortality from the Silmarillion gives an interesting perspective on that line from the poem of being Lord of the Rings. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. Because, of course, we know that doomed to die doesn't mean doomed in the like scary sense of, oh, no, they have to die. What a terrible thing for men. We know that death is the gift of Iluvatar. Men get to go to rest. They get to leave the physical world and go somewhere else. And that this is a gift and it only seems evil and dark because of the lies of Morgoth and Sauron. So when it says here, nine to men doomed to die, 
It just means that that's their fate. As I said last time, a feature, not a bug, that humans get to die. And it's only been twisted to seem evil. And perhaps this is part of the reason that these nine men became corrupted because they thought, oh, look, I can extend my life. I can live forever and be powerful. And then that turned to their undoing. And Soren, of course, as we learn from the Numenor chapter, is an expert at manipulating mortality or human conception of mortality to his own benefit. And tricking these men into becoming his ring race is probably the perfect encapsulation of that. So as we leave this section to the 20 rings, Sauron now has the one ring to rule them all, which alone is a huge, powerful trump card. But he also has nine rings on these men under his service. He's got the ring wraiths on his team. He's in Mordor. He's got his whole crew together and he basically starts taking over like he's fighting against the elves and men, but they're hiding away their rings. They're running away. Sauron is setting himself up to be Morgoth 2.0, basically to start taking over Middle Earth now that he has tricked the elves into basically helping him create these rings to enslave everyone. But now we come to section three of our story, and this is called The Last Alliance. This is the moment now where we're finally going to catch up with last chapter. So quickly to summarize, right when Sauron has the One Ring, he's got the Nazgul, he's going wild. The Numenorians show up in force and they have such a big army that Sauron bails. He says, I quit. Like, I don't want to fight you. And they capture him. The Numenorians take Sauron to Numenor. He convinces them, again, playing on their fear of mortality to sail to Valinor and everybody drowns, including Sauron when the island is sunk. And this is where Sauron, of course, loses his ability to look fair and wise and beautiful. He has to become the big scary guy from the movie. <laughs> and there's this little funny moment where it says in the chapter that Sauron had forgotten the might of the Lords of the West in their anger, which is basically like he's surprised that they sink all of Numenor with him on it. He didn't think that the punishment would be that bad. And it's like, seriously, Sauron, like you forgot the might of the Valar. You just watched them completely destroy Morgoth's huge fortress in Angband at the end of the Silmarillion. Like, you know, these guys can like rip the world apart when they go to war. And you're just like, you're a Maiar who's lived since before the beginning of time. You know they're capable of this stuff. He just wasn't thinking straight, I guess, at that point. But all of that happens. So basically, all of the last chapter occurs right here after these rings are forged and Sauron has his one ring. The surviving Numenorians are Elendil, Isildur, and Arn. They settle in Middle-earth at this time. Elendil settles in the northern part of Middle-earth, which is called Arnor. That's his kingdom. And he becomes best friends with Gil-galad, one of our five elves. Remember, Gil-galad, the last high king of the Noldor. So Elendil, this Numenorian, and Gil-galad set up their bromance up in the north. 
Meanwhile, the brothers, sons of Elendil, Isildur and Anarion, they settle in the south part of Middle-earth in what is called Gondor, right? And that is the same Gondor location that we know from Lord of the Rings. And they build these three big cities in Gondor. Minas Anor, Minas Ithil, and Osgiliath. And these are cities that still exist in the Lord of the Rings. Their names are going to change to Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul. And Osgiliath will remain Osgiliath. But they basically found those three cities in Gondor that last from now up to when, you know, Pippin and Gandalf show up in Minas Tirith in The Return of the King. They plant the white tree. Remember, the white tree is still around. They plant the white tree in Gondor, and they also distribute those seven seeing stones, the Palantir, all around Arnor in the north and Gondor in the south. Basically, like Elendil is the high king. He has the whole north where he's becoming friends with Gilgalad, and then his two sons are sharing Gondor in the south. But they have these seeing stones, the Palantir, so they can communicate really easily. And they set them up at different strategic parts of the Middle-earth battle map. Notably, as a side note, one of these Palantir is set at a place called Amon Sul, which is Weathertop from the Lord of the Rings, right? The place where the hobbits hide and Aragorn has to fight off the ring wraiths who come and Frodo puts on the ring like an idiot and then like gets stabbed by the Witch King. That's on Weathertop. There used to be one of these Palantir there because it's such a great spot up high, you know, that circle of stones. You could picture one of these spherical Palantir just being right there like a cell phone where it can communicate with all the other six stones spread across Middle Earth. And what a great tool. They basically have like cell phones in a Middle Ages style society. They can call each other, right? Like what's going on way down in the south, you know, many hundreds of miles away. Oh, I'll just like check out the Palantir and see what's going on and vice versa. So like what a great tool those must have been at this time in a world where otherwise you have to like cross a huge mountain range, right? The Misty Mountains are right there to just learn what's going on. Anyway, that's what the Numenorids have been doing. Sauron, meanwhile, he loses his fair form, right, and has to slink back from the sinking of Numenor to Middle-earth. He returns to Mordor, as he is wont to do, and <laughs> creates a huge army, as he's also wont to do. So now with the Numenorians in Middle-earth, right, settling it, and Sauron returned to Mordor with his army in the works, we now have set the stage for the grudge match of all grudge matches, right? And we talked a little bit about this at the end of last episode, about the hatred that the Numenorians, the Dúnedain, must feel for Sauron, right? He destroyed their whole homeland and civilization because of his corrupting influence. Meanwhile, he hates them because the Numenorians came and made him surrender, right? They embarrassed him so long ago. And also they made him lose his fair form, although that's really his own fault. But I don't think he would see it this way. So they have real reasons to hate each other above and beyond the simple like who's going to rule Middle Earth sort of dynamic. So Sauron sends out his army against Gondor, right? Because Mordor and Gondor are right next to each other. And Isildur and Anarion and their crew are not enough to hold off Sauron's giant force. So they're trying to fight him, but they're in deep trouble. And I picture they send out like, you know, an SOS distress call on the Palantir network way up to the northwest where Elendil and Gilgalad are. And so Elendil and Gilgalad, this 
Numenorian man Elendil and Gilgalad, the high king of the Noldor elves, they forge the last alliance and they say, we're going to get all of the greatest men of the north. We're going to get all of the elves and we're going to march all the way across Middle Earth to Gondor and Mordor to help out Isildur and Inarion. And this is going to set up the last great battle of our story compared to which like Helm's Deep or the Pelennor Fields from Lord of the Rings, like they just don't even come close to this battle that's in the works. And so here's the quote about the last alliance. Elendil and Gilgalad took counsel together, for they perceived that Sauron would grow too strong and would overcome all his enemies one by one if they did not unite against him. Therefore they made that league which is called the Last Alliance, and they marched east into Middle-earth, gathering a great host of elves and men, and they halted for a while at Rivendell. It is said that the host that was there assembled was fairer and more splendid in arms than any that has since been seen in Middle-earth, and none greater has been mustered since the host of the Valar went against Morgoth. They crossed the Misty Mountains by many passes, and so at last came upon the host of Sauron at Dagorlad, the Battle Plain, which lies before the gate of the Black Land. All living things were divided in that day, and some of every kind, even of beasts and birds, were found in either host, save the elves alone. They alone were undivided and followed Gilgalad. Of the dwarves, few fought upon either side, but the kindred of Durin of Moria fought against Sauron. The host of Gilgalad and Elendil had the victory, for the might of the elves was still great in those days, and the Numenorians were strong and tall and terrible in their wrath. Against Iglos, the spear of Gilgalad, none could stand and the sword of Elendil filled orcs and men with fear, for it shone with the light of the sun and of the moon, and it was named Narsil. So this is the last great battle of our story, and this is the one that's going to basically be recounted in the prologue of the Fellowship of the Rings movie with all of the elves arrayed there with Elrond and the orcs and Sauron fighting. This is this last alliance that we're talking about here. And this elf king, Gilgalad, actually has a small little cameo in that Fellowship of the Ring prologue, if you pay attention closely. He's the only elf with a spear who's kind of standing up and stabbing an orc straight down under him. That's his only little moment. He appears in the Lord of the Rings films, even though he plays a big part in the tales of this time as we're coming to see. Another important note is this line about Elendil's sword, Narsil, for it shone with the light of the sun and the moon. And this is a callback to the original creation 
of the sun and the moon, which we learned about in the Silmarillion, right? Remember, Ungoliant and Morgoth have destroyed the two trees, the only source of light in the world, and have cast the world into darkness in the darkening of Alinor. But from the destroyed trees, the Valar take the fruit and the flower and put them aloft into the sky as the sun and as the moon. And their rising was in a challenge to Morgoth and what his creations truly fear. You've destroyed our trees, but look what we can still do. Here is the sun and moon. And the orcs forever fear the sun in particular. So when it says that Elendil filled orcs and men with fear for the sword shone with the light of sun and the moon, that is a very scary light <laughs> for these evil servants of Sauron because this lesson of hatred for the sun and the moon has not been forgotten. Now, unlike how it appears in the movies, this battle or siege of the last alliance on Mordor does not take an afternoon or a couple of hours like it seems like. This siege lasts seven years. So we've got Elendil and Gilgalad, Ilzador and Anarin are there, Elrond's there. They besiege Mordor for seven years. So like what an epic struggle and how many people must have died over the seven year period and skirmishes and battles. You know, Mordor is surrounded by that huge mountain range. It's not easy to get in there. And that's why the siege takes so long, presumably seven years before they can break into Mordor finally. This seven-year battle is also how we get the Dead Marshes, which Frodo and Sam and Gollum cross in The Lord of the Rings on their path to Mordor, the swamp filled with strange dead bodies outside of Mordor. This is where all those bodies came from. And I have a quote about this crossing of the dead marshes, which still has these dead men and elves and orcs from this battle in which all living things fought on both sides. And Frodo starts. I have seen them too. They lie in all the pools, pale faces, deep, deep under the water. Grim faces, and evil, and noble faces, and sad. Many faces proud and fair, and weeds in their silver hair, but all foul, all rotting, all dead. A fell light is in them. I do not know who they are, but I thought I saw their men, and elves, and orcs beside them. Yes, yes, said Gollum, all dead, all rotten, elves and men and orcs, the dead marshes. There was a great battle long ago, yes, so they told him when Smeagol was young. Tall men with long swords and terrible elves and orcs shrieking. They fought on the plain for days and months at the black gates, but the marshes have grown since then, swallowed up the graves, always creeping, creeping. Sam looked darkly at him and shuddered. Well, I don't want to see them, he said. Never again. Can't we get on and get away? Yes, yes, said Gollum, but slowly, very carefully. 
or hobbits go down to join the dead ones and light little candles. Follow Smeagol. Don't look at the lights. And as we learned, quite a number of bodies must be in there if the siege lasted for seven years. This greatest host assembled since the days when the Valar went against Morgoth, all going against Sauron's forces here. And we also know that this scene of the Lord of the Rings, but also the Silmarillion, has a deep personal connection with J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, you may know, fought in World War One. And he remembered that when it would rain, these craters that had been blasted by artillery in the no man's land would fill with water, right? Become pools and lakes, and they'd be filled with bodies of the dead soldiers from both sides of the war just floating in them. And what a horrible thing to have to be a part of and something that clearly stuck with Tolkien for his whole life and he depicted here in the Dead Marshes. And also in World War I, of course, the battle lines didn't move very much. This idea of a seven years of no progress on either side was not that far out of the reality of what World War One was like. People charging and just being shot down by machine guns on one side, then the other side runs across and they get mowed down. Not a lot of movement one way or the other. We're mostly just camped out, killing each other for years and years and years while these pools fill with the bodies of our dead. So anyway, eventually... This seven-year siege is going to come to an end, and there's going to be the ultimate showdown between Elendil and his sons and Gilgalad, the High King of the Noldor, versus Sauron himself. And here's how this showdown goes. Then Gilgalad and Elendil passed into Mordor and encompassed the stronghold of Sauron, and they laid siege to it for seven years, and suffered grievous loss by fire and by the darts and bolts of the enemy, and Sauron sent many sorties against them. There in the valley of Gorgoroth, Anarion, son of Elendil, was slain, and many others. But at the last the siege was so straight that Sauron himself came forth, and he wrestled with Gilgalad and Elendil, and they both were slain. And the sword of Elendil broke under him as he fell, but Sauron also was thrown down, and with the hilt shard of Narsil, Isildur cut the ruling ring from the hand of Sauron and took it for his own. Then Sauron was for a time vanquished, and he forsook his body, and his spirit fled far away, and hid in waste places, and he took no visible shape again for many long years. So in the end of the showdown, basically everybody loses. I mean, presumably the good guys win because they cut the ring off his hand, but R.I.P. Elendil the Tall, this great leader of the Numenorians. R.I.P. Anarion, Elendil's son. Only Isildur survives from the men's side. Meanwhile, and maybe even more tragically, Gilgalad, 
this last high king of the Noldor dies here in combat with Sauron. And Gilgalad's death more or less marks the end of the Noldor elves as a force in Middle-earth because he had no children. And I said that Gilgalad was the last high king of the Noldor. He's the sixth high king. And remember the five that came before him. What a story the Noldor have gone through, right? The first high king of the Noldor was Finway, one of the original three elves that awoke in the east of Middle-earth and led his people to the west, to Valinor, and there was killed by Morgoth when Morgoth stole the Silmarils from Finway. The second high king of the Noldor was Feanor, the creator of the Silmarils, who then died fighting in Middle-earth trying to get them back. Then the kingship passed to Feanor's brother Fingolfin, the warrior brother who died fighting Morgoth in single combat. Then Fingon, Fingolfin's son, also a warrior, became the king until Fingon was killed by Gothmog, the lord of Balrogs. Turgon was the fifth high king. Turgon, the king of Gondolin, who died in Gondolin's tragic fall. And then Gilgalad, this sixth, in what a line of amazing elves has just fallen and the Noldor are basically done. So very tragic. And without the background of the Silmarillion, you might not realize quite how tragic this end is, right? End of an era. Gilgalad is dead. The Noldor kings are over. There's a poem in The Lord of the Rings that is translated from Elvish into the common tongue by Bilbo. And Sam sings it, and it's about this sadness at the end of the era represented by Gilgalad dying here, fighting for the good guys against Sauron. It goes, Gilgalad was an elven king, of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. His sword was long, his lance was keen, his shining helm afar was seen. The countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say. For into darkness fell his star in Mordor, where the shadows are. Goodbye to Gilgalad, who the elves will miss, right? He wasn't in our story very long, but plays an outsized role in the history of the elves. And just another sign of the elves slowly fading away from their golden age in the first age of Middle-earth. Now, I told you we were going to come back to this difficulty of translation, an unreliable narrator who is telling this story. And this is the part where we're going to do so. And that's because there's some controversy about how this battle between Elendil, Gilgalad, Sauron, and Isildur, potentially, how this all played out. Now, the question is, 
did Isildur, like it's shown in the Fellowship of the Ring prologue, rush into battle after Elendil and Gilgalad went down, grab up the broken blade of Narsil, and then fight Sauron and cut the ring from his finger and thereby defeat Sauron? That's one way to read this story. There is a more controversial way to read this scene of battle between these great elves and men and Maiar evil spirits, Sauron. And that is that actually Gilgalad and Elendil and Sauron basically like all killed each other. They all died fighting each other before Isildur entered the fray. And then all Isildur did was walk up and take the broken sword and then cut the ring from Sauron's defeated body and then claiming the ring as his own from that. It's hard to tell which one it is. Again, in the quote I just read, it's using the passive voice. You can't quite tell. It says, Sauron came forth and he wrestled with Gilgalad and Elendil and they both were slain and the sword of Elendil broke. And then it says, but Sauron also was thrown down and with the hilt of Narsil, Isildur cut the ruling ring from the hand of Sauron. So it doesn't say Isildur threw down Sauron, just says Sauron was thrown down. So that's not definitive. There's also a quote from the Lord of the Rings that Elrond says, because remember, Elrond was there. Elrond says, quote, I was the herald of Gilgalad and marched with his host. I beheld the last combat on the slopes of Orodruin, where Gilgalad died, and Elendil fell, and Narsil broke beneath him. But Sauron himself was overthrown, and Isildur cut the ring from his hand with the hilt shard of his father's sword, and took it for his own. So again, Elrond is using the passive voice, Sauron himself was overthrown, not Isildur overthrew Sauron. So we just don't know. It's unclear. The only evidence we actually have that Isildur fought Sauron is from Isildur himself, who says in our Silmarillion chapter here, was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? But here's where we get into the unreliable narrator piece. And I know I'm going on a little bit about this, but Isildur is only saying this when he is trying to defend his claim to the One Ring. He's talking with Elrond and Círdan, who are saying, hey, throw the ring in the fire, throw the ring in the fire, you can destroy Sauron. And Isildur says, no, I'm not going to do that. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? Don't I get to decide what happens to the ring, basically, is what he's saying? So that's an extremely unreliable thing, right? Because we know the ring is so corrupting, right? The One Ring immediately is trying to glom on to Isildur. And so he is doing much like what Gollum does with his birthday present or Bilbo does even, right? I won it in the riddle contest. Isildur wants everybody to think that he deserves the ring. And the best way for him to say that is because he defeated Sauron. But we don't know if that's actually how it happened. It's a very interesting thing about Isildur's character here and really, again, underlies that problem of who is telling the story, right? Who is our narrator? Can we trust this translation in history? And the answer is, honestly, we don't know. <laughs> we may never know. 
I just think that's really interesting. It's something that Tolkien was very much into as a scholar of ancient texts, right? Of old English, for example, the Beowulf manuscript, trying to pull truth from history, from what people wrote down, pull truth from fiction. This is what we're doing here, reading the Silmarillion. And we have to be very careful and think about how we do that, who we trust, uh, how things are phrased. It's kind of the fun of reading things closely like this. Anyhow, this is the end of the Second Age, and it ends in victory, but tragedy. Sauron is defeated, right? But the ring survives, and Elendil is dead. Anarion is dead. Gilgalad is dead. Of our five elves at the beginning, Celebrimbor is now dead, and... Gilgalad is dead. So we're losing our best five pretty quickly here. And now we finally do begin the third age with section four, everything else. Now, this section is a little flippantly called everything else simply because the Tolkien's really throw a grab bag at us at the very end of the Silmarillion with, oh, hey, here's a ton of extra stuff that goes on in the Third Age, including everything pertaining to Lord of the Rings in a super condensed version. So I'm not going to be able to hit everything, but I'm going to try and pick out the biggest pieces because the time escape gets really condensed here for the last section. We're going to cover a lot of time in very short order so that we can catch up and surpass our Lord of the Rings story, as I promised at the very beginning. First of all, as I said, here we are in the Third Age. For those of you keeping track at home, let's quickly run through just what these ages are. The First Age remember, ended with Eärendil getting to Valinor, convincing the gods to come help. The Arda Corporation whomps Morgoth and casts him off into the void. When Morgoth is defeated, that's the end of the First Age. The Second Age had to do with Numenor and also these rings of power that we've covered in the last two episodes, and it just ended. When Sauron has the ring cut from his finger, whether that's in combat with Isildur or afterwards when he's lying prone with Isildur nearby, either way, that's the end of the Second Age, and here begins the third one. The Third Age is going to run from now until the end of The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo and Sam and Gollum drop that ring in the fire, Barad-dur crumbles, the eye is destroyed, Sauron's gone forever, yay, yay, yay. That's the end of this Third Age that we're starting right here, and then begins the Fourth Age, which we're in when the Lord of the Rings story concludes. That's going to be the Age of Men. So we've got to cover all of this third age in this section for everything else. Let's get cracking. First of all, the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring occurs more or less. Isildur decides to keep the One Ring instead of destroying it. Meanwhile, the Dúnedain, or the remaining Numenorians who live in the north in Arnor, they kind of fall apart a little bit. The story says they become divided into petty realms and lordships, and their foes devoured them one by one. So they're not all dead, but... 
they're not this great kingdom in the north anymore. It's kind of a grab bag of fiefdoms and lordships at this point. The Numenorians who are still in Gondor do better for a while, right? Like they maintain a civilization and this civilization is going to more or less last until the Lord of the Rings time. However, eventually the guys in Gondor are hit by plague and also even with Sauron gone, the ring wraiths continue to fight them. So Gondor is basically constantly at war with Mordor and the ring wraiths led now by the witch king of Angmar, who we know and hate. The ring wraiths are pretty successful at this war with Gondor, to be honest. The first thing they do is they retake one of those three cities of Gondor we mentioned. We said the Gondorans had Minas Anor, Osgiliath, and Minas Ithil, which means the Tower of the Moon. And Minas Ithil is actually built into the mountains that surround Mordor. It's the closest one to Mordor, and the Ringwraiths take it over by force. They drive the Gondorians back west towards Osgiliath and Minas Anor, and they take Minas Ithil and turn it into their own evil Ringwraith home base. And this is now Minas Morgul. Before it was Ithil, the Tower of the Moon, now it's Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. And this is the tower where Frodo and Sam and Gollum in the movie, they have to sneak up the stairs, right? The secret stairway right next to this big tower where the ring wraiths are hanging out. And then a big army comes out and there's some scary bestial looking statues. Anyway, that's Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. And so that was actually built by the Gondorians before it was taken over by the ring wraiths and turned into this scary, like green lit kind of like haunted house sort of look. Okay, so once that happens, once Minas Ithil becomes Minas Morgul, more or less the Gondorians flee back towards Minas Anor, the Tower of the Sun, and rename it also Minas Tirith now, the Tower of the Guard. And we all know Minas Tirith from the books and movies. It's that seven-tiered white city where the stewards rule and where the big battle of the Pelennor Fields takes place outside. So... A lot of renaming going on. Couldn't leave you in our last QQQ episode without some confusing name conventions. <laughs> but more or less, this battle continues for many, many years. Sauron is gone, but the ring wraiths and orcs are still there. Gondor is never safe, though it does hold together for a time. And the children of Anarion, who died in the battle against Sauron at the end of the Second Age, the children of Anarion are the kings of Gondor. And this line of kings holds steady for a while until the witch king, so the head ringwraith, comes up with a plan. And he challenges the king of Gondor to single combat. Like, come on and ride out to Minas Morgul on the border of Mordor and Gondor, and let's have it out. Mano e ringwraithio. And so this king of Gondor, one of the heirs of Anarion, rides out to fight the Morgul king, the head of the Nazgul. And he that was a big mistake, basically, because it says in the story, quote, and he met him in single combat, but he was betrayed by the Nazgul and taken alive into the city of torment and no living man saw him ever again. So the king of Gondor just got completely tricked 
and killed. And of course, this king has no heir. So there goes the line of the kings of Gondor. And the reason we make a big point of this, of course, is that the Lord of the Rings is so obsessed with Aragorn coming back and becoming the lost heir who's going to restart this line of kings of Gondor. And so that's how the line failed with this last king trying to fight one on one with the witch king, but getting tricked and murdered. And then the stewards take over. Right. So the stewards of Gondor were just literally like the steward of the king, right? The second in command and advisor. And so when the king rides out and dies or is captured and never comes back, the stewards are like, oh crap, I guess we're in charge. And that's how we get Denethor, the steward of Gondor in The Return of the King, and Boromir and Faramir. They're all of this line of stewards. And the stewards rule for many, many generations in between this witch king betrayal technique and Aragorn showing up. The stewards are there for a lot of generations where they're in charge. The other thing this reminds me of this last king of Gondor riding out to fight the witch king one on one is it's such a good throwback to the Fingolfin versus Morgoth mano e gato showdown that we had earlier in the Silmarillion, right? Where Fingolfin, the greatest warrior elf ever goes up to Morgoth after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears and tries to take him on one-on-one. And Fingolfin ends up dying, though he does wound Morgoth, importantly, and has some help from Throndor the Eagles. This one's such a letdown, though, if it's a callback to that one-on-one showdown of hero versus evil one. It's almost a sign of... You know, we talked about the golden age thing a lot, how things were always bigger and better and more wondrous and more terrible, just like everything was more in the first age. Well, now we're in the third age. And what was this epic confrontation between Fingolfin and Morgoth has now been reduced to Ah, we tricked you. Like I picture they just throw a bag over the last king of Gondor's head and like drag him into Minas Morgul. And that's that. It's just not the same It's an echo of something great that once was, and it just doesn't quite live up the same way. Now we're in the third age. Okay, so anyway, that ends the line of Anarion, we said. Remember, we had Elendil, basically the high king of the remaining Numenorians. He died fighting Sauron. Anarion, his son, died. But Isildur, his other son, did survive, and that's who took the One Ring. In Isildur, just like in the movie prologue, he ends up getting shot by a bunch of orcs because the ring tricks him and slips off his finger. But Isildur did have one son still living up in the north in Aonor, which is this place that's now soon going to become petty fiefdoms and lordships, right? Kind of lose its cohesive civilization structure. But that son who's back in the north is going to have children and those children are going to have children. And you see where I'm going. Here comes Aragorn way down the line. So this is why Aragorn is a Dunedain, a wandering ranger up in the north, because they lose the feeling of civilization up there. Right. The Dunedain are no longer the Numenorians, like these supermen. Though he still has, of course, the genes. Remember, he's 87 years old and still kicking butt in Lord of the Rings. But he's just not that lord anymore. And it takes a lot to get him to take up that mantle of leadership. Elrond, by the way, 
takes care of these heirs of Isildur, right? Because there's many between Isildur's death and Aragorn, right? All these children are raised in Rivendell, or many of them are raised in Rivendell, where Elrond educates them, gives them wisdom, gives them protection, because the bad guys are always, you know, thinking about trying to kill all the Numenorans where they can in the Dunedain. And partially this is because Elrond knows this is going to be important in the future. But also remember, he's related to these heirs of Isildur. Elrond's brother Elros was the first king of Numenor, and Elendil and Isildur and Anarion are all part of that bloodline. So it's almost like Elrond's being a really, really good grand, grand, grand uncle <laughs> to all these heirs of Arnor and Gondor, right? The last king. So that's how we get Aragorn finally coming down from the north in our Lord of the Rings story and becoming that king who had been lost for generations in the north. Not the heir of Anarion, because that line did fail, but the line of Isildur did hold true. Now something big happens, and it's something that I guarantee nobody who was reading this for the first time would think would come about with only five pages left in the Silmarillion. We are right at the end of our story here after hundreds of pages of action. There's some people who've been missing this whole time, but here at last with five pages left come the wizards. And here's how it happens. Even as the first shadows were felt in Mirkwood, there appeared in the west of Middle-earth the Istari, whom men call the Wizards. None knew at that time whence they came, save Círdan of the Havens, and only to Elrond and to Galadriel did he reveal that they came over the sea. But afterwards, it was said among the elves that they were messengers sent by the Valar to contest the power of Sauron and to move elves and men and all living things of goodwill to valiant deeds. In the likeness of men they appeared, old but vigorous, and they changed a little with the years and aged but slowly, though great cares lay on them, great wisdom they had, and many powers of mind and hand. Long they journeyed far and wide among elves and men, and held converse also with beasts and with birds, and the peoples of Middle-earth gave to them many names, for their true names they did not reveal. Chief among these were those whom the elves called Mithrandir and Kuranir, but men in the north named Gandalf and Saruman. Of these, Saruman was the eldest and came first, and after him came Gandalf and Radagast, and others of the wizards who went into the east of Middle-earth and do not come into these tales. Radagast was a friend of all beasts and birds, but Saruman went most among men, and he was subtle in speech and skilled in all the devices of smithcraft. Gandalf was closest in council with Elrond and the elves. He wandered far in the north and west, and made never in any land any lasting abode. Ever most vigilant was Gandalf, but at length the shadow returned, and its power increased, and in that time was first made the Council of the Wise that is called the White Council. 
and therein were Elrond and Galadriel and Círdan and other lords of the Eldar, and with them were Gandalf and Saruman, and Saruman the White was chosen to be their chief. Galadriel indeed had wished that Gandalf should be the lead of the council, but Gandalf refused the office since he would have no ties and no allegiance save to those who sent him, and he would abide in no place, nor be subject to any summons. There they are with five pages left. We've got Saruman, we got Gandalf, we've got Radagast. We also notably have these other wizards who go into the East and don't come into these tales. It's uh, something I think admirable about the Tolkien's that sometimes he'll just throw those loose ends out there, right? Much like the, oh, hey, there are seven great dwarf hordes of treasure somewhere in Middle Earth and we're not going to talk about them. These wizards just wander off and we don't even get their names here in the story. So I'll just say one more time, it's wild how late these wizards are to the game. (laughs) This is after, for example, the battle we had earlier in the chapter between Elendil and Gilgalad, the prologue battle of the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Gandalf wasn't even Middle-earth when that was going on. That's why he wasn't there. Neither was Saruman or Radagast, any of the other wizards. They only show up once Sauron has been defeated. He's hiding out in Mirkwood as this sorcerer, right? He can't even really take form. But the Valar finally send them over. And so the third age is basically the age of the wizards. And since it's told in such short form in the Silmarillion, it really doesn't seem like they're doing a lot. Of course, the third age lasts like 3000 plus years. So they do plenty of stuff. Now, the wizards, as we've talked about previously, these are Maiar spirits. So just because it's now they're showing up in Middle Earth doesn't mean they haven't been around. In fact, they were around since before Earth was a thing. And they're of a similar level of being as, say, Sauron is. Sauron was a Maiar or the Balrogs, for example. So extremely potent spirits just not quite at the level of the Valar, right? The Valar are the Arda Corporation, the god gods, and the Maiar are more demigods or slightly lesser spirits, but still full of potency. And obviously we know how great the wizards can be. One question, and this is something that I think was a wonderful twist and idea by J.R. Tolkien, is why are they old men? Right. That's the question. Why do these have to be old men with big beards who like have cracked backs and have to walk with staffs? This is not your dream team to help fight Sauron in any sort of physical sense. I have a quote here from not the Silmarillion or the Lord of the Rings, but from a separate text called Unfinished Tales that discusses Tolkien's idea about why are the wizards given the form that they are? Emissaries they were from lords of the West, the Valar, who still took counsel for the governance of Middle-earth, and when the shadow of Sauron began first to stir again, took this means of resisting him. For with the consent of Iluvatar, they sent members of their own high order, but clad in bodies as of men, real and not feigned, but subject to the fears and pains and weariness of earth, able to hunger and thirst and be slain. 
Though because of their noble spirits, they did not die, and aged only by the cares and labors of many long years. And this the Valar did, desiring to amend the errors of old, especially that they had attempted to guard and seclude the elves by their own might and glory fully revealed, whereas now their emissaries were forbidden to reveal themselves in forms of majesty, or to seek to rule the wills of men and elves by open display of power, but coming in shapes weak and humble were bidden to advise and persuade men and elves to good, and to seek to unite in love and understanding all those whom Sauron, should he come again, would endeavor to dominate and corrupt. This explanation I find really interesting. The idea is basically that the Valar have finally come to the conclusion that we're not going to just make the men and elves do what we want to do. The children of Illumitar are just going to do their own thing. Every time we get involved, things just get worse for the most part, right? Either we like destroy half of the continent or we just make them mad at us or they start like worshiping the Dark Lord instead. It's all bad. So we're done with showing up like Arome way back when, right? The rider god riding his big horse Nahar and showing like, hey, I'm a big, awesome god. Come with me. They're not doing that anymore. They're sending old guys <laughs> who are forbidden from revealing themselves in forms of might and glory. The other reason for this is that the Valar don't trust the wizards. The wizards, as we've said, are these Maiar spirits. They are very potent creatures, right? Picture the Balrog, for example. If they wanted to, they could show up at that level of dominating force and presence, weapons of war, right? They could rule entire civilizations. They could take over Middle Earth. And the Valar are afraid that might happen. So they say, wizards, we're going to send you to help against Sauron, but you're going to be in super frail old man bodies so that you have to just give good counsel, right? You have to persuade people, say, hey, Sauron's doing something. You elves and men might want to do something about that, but you can't yourselves just go wreck because otherwise we're just going to end up setting up another dark lord or like you guys are going to try and enslave the other peoples or just take over. Right? We're done with that piece. You have to just give advice and that's it. And that's a really interesting idea for why the wizards are the way they are. And I really like it. So every time you see Gandalf have like a cracked back or like in the movie, he slams his forehead into the beam in Frodo and Bilbo's house in Bag End. He is demonstrating this thing that was very intentional. That's who we want you to be. We want you to be advisors, healers, counselors. We don't want you to be warriors or kings or gods, which in fact they are demigods at least. Now, this all comes into play in a big way in this next quote I'm going to read. This is the moment where Gandalf has to have a reckoning with this command of the Valar. They've said specifically, you cannot be in charge. You are only to give advice and to help. 
But Gandalf, being who he is, right, he wants to help in the best way possible. And it's really hard, right, not to start taking over or to drive the ship in a big way. And especially that's difficult if someone tries to literally hand you the world. Frodo begins this quote. You are wise and powerful, Gandalf. Will you not take the ring? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. He went to the window and drew aside the curtains and the shutters. Sunlight streamed back again into the room. And now, said the wizard, Turning back to Frodo, the decision lies with you, but I will always help you. He laid his hands on Frodo's shoulder. I will help you bear this burden as long as it's yours to bear. Now this scene has big stakes for Gandalf, given that this was exactly what the Valar feared, where they sent the wizards. It's a gamble, right? We're going to send in these spirits to help fight Sauron, but we're worried that they might seek to take over, and we have to be very careful. And Gandalf here is definitely tempted by this idea, right? Not out of any evil purpose, but by the idea that I know what's right. I'm so much stronger, like my history is so much longer. I have to just stay back. I have to coach from the sidelines. I can help in. Obviously, he's a huge help, but he can't take the ring. Galadriel makes the similar conclusion, right? It's the same thing. It's worse for me to step in than to accept the consequences of not doing so. And also, I realize this is the second quote today about Frodo totally trying to bail out of his quest by giving the ring to somebody who he deems would do a better job with it. You'll also notice once again, Gandalf talking about pity here. The way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. And remember, this is because Gandalf, when he was Olorin, the Maiar spirit, before coming to Middle-earth, he was very closely connected to the Valar in charge of pity and weeping and sorrow. In Tolkien's world, there is a god devoted to those things. And Gandalf was very close with her. And he takes that here and he says, pity is my weakness, but it's also my strength. And the reason that Gandalf can stick to his purpose, help the elves, help the men, help the hobbits. And even why he hangs out with the hobbits at all is because he pities them and he empathizes with them, right? He understands the hobbits and he sticks to his purpose where all of the other wizards 
fail at this task. So a couple of the wizards who aren't named just head east and never do anything. Well, their purpose is to help against Sauron, so they didn't do anything. Radagast just gets distracted by his love for the birds and the beasts and doesn't really help against Sauron in any major way. So he kind of fails. And that leaves one more wizard, Saruman. And Saruman, of course, is the perfect case study of what the Valar feared most because Sauron does indeed try to take over. He tries to find the ruling ring and he's going to be the lord over everyone. Thank goodness the Valar didn't let Saruman show up as like a Balrog style giant being of power sort of thing because then he'd be so much easier for him to achieve that bad end. But He's hampered by being in the old body and he still almost pulls it off. Saruman is a hair's breadth away from being the Dark Lord, right? He gets a big army. He lives in this big fortress. He's very close to getting the ring. And it's interesting here, of course, that Gandalf, who arrives second, but has that secret well of pity from his connection to the Valar. That's what keeps him on the right path where Saruman failed. Now, recognizing this trait, perhaps, in Gandalf, it's not said exactly why, but so the wizards arrive over the sea from the west, and Círdan, our shipwright, the surfer, is there, and he's the only one who sees them arrive. But Círdan has one of these three elven rings. Galadriel has one, Elrond has one, Círdan has one. The only three rings left to the elves, their best three. And when Gandalf shows up, Círdan gives Gandalf his ring, and it's a very small moment, not explained terribly well, but more or less the reason is that Círdan realizes that he's just going to be hanging along the coast and doesn't have any plans to go inland, and Gandalf is heading inland to fight Sauron. He's like, oh, hey, you could probably use this, (laughs) and he just gives Gandalf his elven ring. What a gift which Gandalf has. So basically the entire time Gandalf has hidden this ring, right? Like you don't see it on his hand because they're magically invisible. But Gandalf has that secret source of power with him as well. And perhaps that is helping him also in this temptation that Frodo presents to take the one ring. Gandalf's like, oh, that's a little gaudy to have two rings. (laughs) So now the wizards have showed up. They are all a part of this white council I mentioned in the quote. And the white council includes all of our remaining big five elves, right? Gilgalad's dead, Celebrimbor's dead, but we've still got Galadriel, Elrond, and Círdan. Those three plus the wizards basically are on this white council. And Gandalf says, I don't want to lead the council. Basically, I don't want to be tied down. I've got too much traveling and advising and seeking wisdom to do. So Saruman steps into this role. I'll be the lead of the council. And this is obviously bad because they don't know that. But Saruman is trying to take over just like the Valar thought he might. At this time, Sauron is in Mirkwood hiding out, and it takes the good guys a long time to figure out that it's Sauron. The Hobbit movie trilogy, by the way, makes a big deal out of this going into Mirkwood. Is it Sauron? Is it the Necromancer? Who is it? What's going on? Should we move against them? Should we not? Anyway, all this time, of course, is buying time for Sauron to 
prepare himself to move back to Mordor, right? Basically, he hides out in Mirkwood while the Ringwraiths and his other servants re-tidy up Mordor, rebuild his fortress, get it all ready for his return home. And then when they finally drive him out of Mirkwood, the White Council, Sauron's like, oh, great. Like, I already have my old house. I can stop having this vacation place in Mirkwood. I'll go back to my main spot in Mordor. So it's kind of foiled there, driving him out of Mirkwood. And Saruman has a big hand in this. Saruman, in fact, is a bit like Sauron and by extension Morgoth. He's cunning. He's very well spoken. He's just generally can convince people that he is doing things for their good when really he's doing things for his own. So this delays them driving Sauron out of Mirkwood because Saruman thinks that as long as Sauron is in Mirkwood, the ring, which has an intelligence of its own, might try and come and find Sauron, right? It might emerge. It might find a bearer to bring it back into the sunlight, which in fact it does, right? It's got Gollum, it's got Bilbo. And so he wants Sauron in Mirkwood so that Sauron can tease out the ring, almost like a bait for the ring to come out so that Saruman can then grab the ring and be in charge of everybody. The only reason that Saruman allows the White Council to eventually drive Sauron away is that Saruman learns that the ring might be in the River Anduin, which runs right by Mirkwood. And in fact, it did fall into the River Anduin. That's where Isildur died, and that's where Gollum and Deagle found it in the bottom of this river. It's right by Mirkwood. And Saruman finally learns that, and he goes, oh no, Sauron's right there. He's going to find the ring before I do. I want my guys searching the river. I don't want Sauron's guys searching the river. So he finally is like, okay, let's drive Sauron out of Mirkwood and get him out of here. That happens. They send him to Mordor so that Saruman can himself explore the river, trying always to seek the ring. So this is all very behind the scenes, right? You don't know this from the Lord of the Rings story, but Saruman's every move from very early on is calculated on how do I find this ring without anybody knowing that that's what I'm trying to do or Sauron finding it. He's really like walking on the edge of a knife about that, right? He's pretty clever about getting close to that objective. Now, all of this happens. Sauron returns to Mordor and the ring is finally discovered as Saruman long predicted, right? But what nobody predicted is that this ring would show up in the pocket of one Mr. Bilbo Baggins, a hobbit who nobody knows what the hobbits are or what they're about except Gandalf. And the hobbits are mentioned for the first time in our Silmarillion story on the second to last page. They have no mention until right here. They were just overlooked for a long time, right? They played no part in the great affairs of the first or second or most of the third age until now near the end. But now they've got a big part to play. And Gandalf, because of his pity, because of his travels, his wisdom, his just like willingness to be with anybody, he knows about the hobbits and he finds it first. And that's such a secret edge that Gandalf has, right? If Saruman had known first, oh my goodness, that would have been 
very, very bad. So now we have the ring of power in Bilbo's pocket, and we have just caught up with the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings. Finally, here at last, guys, we are at the Lord of the Rings in our Silmarillion story. We've made it through prehistory, right? We were there before the world was made. Then we learned about all the gods. Then we learned about the first age. Now we've gone through the second age. Now we've gone through most of the third age and we're at the Lord of the Rings. And now I'm going to read in full the Silmarillion's description of the events of the Lord of the Rings. It's what I like to call the Lord of the Rings in four paragraphs. It's like the too long didn't read or the spark notes, if people still use spark notes, version of the entire Lord of the Rings story. So strap in. Here we go. Those who saw the things that were done in that time deeds of valor and wonder have elsewhere told the tale of the War of the Ring and how it ended both in victory unlooked for and in sorrow long foreseen. Here let it be said that in those days the heir of Isildur arose in the north, and he took the shards of the sword of Elendil, and in Rivendell they were reforged, and he went then to war, a great captain of men. He was Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the nine and thirtieth heir in the right line from Isildur, and yet more like to Elendil than any before him. Battle there was in Rohan, and Saruman the traitor was thrown down, and Isengard broken, and before the city of Gondor a great field was fought, and the Lord of Morgul, captain of Sauron, there passed into darkness. And the heir of Isildur led the host of the west to the black gates of Mordor. In that last battle were Gandalf and the sons of Elrond, and the king of Rohan, and lords of Gondor, and the heir of Isildur with the Dúnedain of the north. There at the last they looked upon death and defeat, and all their valor was in vain, for Sauron was too strong. Yet in that hour was put to the proof that which Gandalf had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. For, as many songs have since sung, it was the hobbits, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows, that brought them deliverance. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Gandalf, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant he passed through peril and darkness, and came at last in Sauron's despite even to Mount Doom, and there into the fire where it was wrought he cast the great ring of power, and so at last it was unmade, and its evil consumed. Then Sauron failed, and he was utterly vanquished, and passed away like a shadow of malice. And the towers of Barad-dûr crumbled in ruin, and at the rumor of their fall, many lands trembled. Thus peace came again, and a new spring opened on earth, and the heir of Isildur was crowned king of Gondor and Arnor, and the might of the Dúnedain was lifted up, and their glory renewed. In the courts of Minas Tirith, the white tree flowered again, and while it still grew there, the elder days were not wholly forgotten, 
in the hearts of the kings. There you have it. All of the Lord of the Rings in four paragraphs. What a ride <laughs> that was. And it's really nice to finally get the hobbits playing their long, unmentioned, but incredibly important part in our story. Of course, this perspective is told from a Silmarillion perspective, right? So it cares a lot more about the genealogy of Aragorn and Isildur than it does about the hobbits themselves. But what a ride. And with Sauron's destruction here, as I said, so ends the Third Age and begins the Fourth Age, the Age of Men. Also, reading that quote, it makes me think of this comparison once again between Frodo and Eärendil, our hero at the end of the Silmarillion. In both circumstances, the Dark Lord wins in the Battle of Arms. Morgoth takes all nine squares. Sauron is about to conquer all of Middle-earth. But where strength of arms is not enough, one determined soul can make all the difference. And I think that that is something central to Tolkien. And it's really something wonderful that gets overlooked in this world of great elves and genealogy and men and Numenor and Balrogs and wizards. That is important and that's wonderful to follow. But at the end, it's somebody without great abilities. Neither Eärendil or Frodo really is a superhero, but they just know what has to be done and they get the job done. And I told you we're now at the end of the Lord of the Rings story. The Silmarillion started before time began and ended after all of the rest of Tolkien's works, right? It goes through the end of the other stories. We're now here on the last page of the Silmarillion, and you can feel me slow to wrap it up for us. The Silmarillion ends, and I'm going to read here the last paragraph, the same way as the Lord of the Rings does, and no less beautifully. The ring bearers, Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrond, Frodo, and Bilbo, set sail for Valinor. They take off in that ship. And remember, Valinor is no longer a part of the physical round earth that happened when Numenor was destroyed, but this ship with the ring bearers on it can sail the straight road, right? Leave the earth and still make it into the undying lands in the west where they can see all of the elves over there and the Ard Corporation waiting for them. What a return for Galadriel, right? Who's been gone for so long. She was part of the exile of the Noldor, finally returning home. What a return for Gandalf, the only wizard who did his job. And what a sight for Frodo and Bilbo. Who'd imagine that the hobbits would get to go to the Undying Lands? Here is the end of the Silmarillion. White was that ship, and long was it a building, and long it awaited the end of which Círdan had spoken. But when all these things were done, and the heir of Isildur had taken up the lordship of men, 
and the dominion of the West had passed to him, then it was made plain that the power of the three rings also was ended, and to the firstborn the world grew old and gray. In that time the last of the Noldor set sail from the havens and left Middle-earth forever. And latest of all, the keepers of the three rings rode to the sea, and Master Elrond took there the ship that Círdan had made ready. In the twilight of autumn it sailed out of Mithlund, until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more. And borne upon the high airs above the mists of the world, it passed into the ancient west and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song. If you are reading the story with us, or if you have just listened to the whole thing, you made it. We made it through this messy, haphazard, hard to follow, name soup, brilliant, wonderful history, poem, legendarium book that is the Silmarillion. Congratulations. You did it, and I hope that if you are listening now, you feel like you have gleaned something from these stories written by one man and interpreted for us by his son that is worthwhile. And if it makes you have a greater appreciation for the Lord of the Rings, for The Hobbit, or just for language or history, or just honestly one man's lifelong project to build a cohesive world for us to explore, then Raleigh and I will have done our job. Now, as we're at the end, I have a couple of other very short quotes from the Lord of the Rings I'd like to share. But before I do so, I just have a couple of quick things to say. One, obviously, if you've listened to the show, you know we don't run ads on our show. We're not asking for followers or likes or subscribes or anything like that. That's not why Raleigh and I did this. But if you are so inclined, you who have made it through the 30 episodes of this Quenya Questions in Quarantine, I feel that you have the authenticity and the experience to give us your judgment and feedback. So if you want to scroll down and give us a rating, or if you want to write a review, you can scroll down to whatever app you're listening to this show on right now and do so. We'd love it. Honestly, our hope is that such things would just help our show get to the place where more people would see it so that more people can see, oh, what's the Silmarillion? What's this story about it? Let's get involved. We want more people to read this book that we both really have enjoyed. 
I also want to give quick credit to two people that have helped make this show possible, who we have not thanked enough. This is, of course, Adam Harris, who does all the original music and sound editing for our show from episode one up to episode 30 today. And to Kathleen Martin, who drew the cover art for Quenya Questions in Quarantine. You can find her at Kathleen Illustrated, Adam and Kathleen Thank you to so, so much. Now, the final Lord of the Rings quote that I've picked, I think sums up how a lot of us have been feeling for this last difficult year plus where things weren't certain, we were quarantined for part of it, the world seemed against us and the future was unclear. This is something that Frodo says to Sam. You cannot always be torn in two. You will have to be one and whole for many years. You have so much to enjoy and to be and to do. Well, now, everyone, it's time to turn that corner. As Sam says at the very last line of Lord of the Rings, well, I'm back. Well, we're coming back, world. And there is so much to do. Thank you, J.R.R. Tolkien. Thank you, Christopher Tolkien. Thank you, Raleigh. And thank you, truly thank you, for joining us on this journey. <laughs>